Leonard Bernstein saw himself very much as a theatre composer, but one whose mission was to draw together the theatre and the concert hall. And nowhere throughout his output, I think, is this more successfully achieved than in his first ballet score, Fancy Free. It has, while well, it's shot through with a kind of cool, sophisticated jazz, touches of Broadway razzmatazz, but all of that allied to sound Stravinskyan compositional procedures and inner structure. Now, I say it was his first ballet. It was also his first collaboration with the celebrated American choreographer Jerome Robbins. By all accounts, the two had a thoroughly high-octane relationship, which was very mutually satisfying. In fact, Robbins said, shortly after Bernstein's death, that somehow they fed each other enormous amounts of fuel. And that, in fact, the compositional process, or the, the process of the birthing of Fancy Free, as it were, in late 1943, early 1944, was a mutually highly satisfying experience in that somehow the choreography and the composition proceeded symbiotically, hand in hand. A little word about the story of Fancy Free. It's a very simple plot. We're wartime America, wartime New York, 1944. Three sailors on shore leave. They're on the prowl for girls. They go into a bar, start drinking, and then, hey presto, two girls walk in, one brunette and one redhead. So there follows a, a sort of dance competition to see which men are going to win the women, which then degenerates into a fight, at which point, of course, the two women leave. So then there's a certain amount of despondency, more dancing, more drinking, and then, as if by magic, another woman walks into the bar, this time a blonde. And so the whole process starts over again. Now, looking at the first of the seven scenes that make up Fancy Free, you find immediately that Bernstein is just taking an extraordinary pleasure in putting a kind of rhythmic pattern through what you might call a meter mill. In other words, a pattern in four in a bar, say, remains the same, but when put through three in a bar. And in this first section, there's a constant equivocation between three and four. This is definitely a process learnt from Stravinsky. There's a famous, almost apocryphal story about Bernstein, the conductor, this is, talking about the great Rite of Spring. And he said that you could perform the whole of the Rite of Spring, which is an incredibly rhythmically complex work, in four in a bar, if you just moved all the bars around. However, it wasn't a process that Bernstein applied to his own composition. He preferred to keep it very much on the edge. Of course, you could rebar parts of Fancy Free and make them simpler to play, but in so doing, you might lose some of the kind of the frisson, some of the very danger, some of the on the edgeness, which is part of what makes this music so successful. So let me show you the first brass phrase. Four in a bar here at this point. Now, the winds, the piano, and the upper strings have the same opening figure, but sat over a changed pulse landscape with the bar lines, i.e., therefore, the strong beats, every three rather than four. Now, just after that, the strings are back in four, and listen to how the violins and the violas have a new variation on that tune, still within the same basic rhythmic premise, Essentially, he loops it, but still constantly altering the meter around it, between three and four. Next, the piano gets its first solo feature. Appropriately, in fact, as the piano is essentially the star of the show throughout this ballet. And here it ruminates on the same core material for a nice uneven five bars of four beats till the brass burst in and hijack the line. Now, here's a third variation on the tune of a slinkier sort in the flutes and clarinets to be played, Bernstein asks, light and bouncy.
And so he carries on in much the same vein, adding new colours and messing with the metre. Listen now to how the movement winds down, segueing into the second scene, which is entitled Scene at the Bar. And a little barroom boogie-woogie from the piano. How effortless a segue was that. The clarinets introduced a new theme at the top of this second section, which, as I said, is called Scene at the Bar, at a more held tempo. But the febrile walking pizzicata interjections carry the atmosphere of the first scene forward into this one. Bernstein creates a thoroughly integrated emotional line around which the scene can change at any moment. And this overarching through line stops Fancy Free ever getting too bitty, too hits from a dance show like. It does have, I think, a symphonic development quality to it and therefore it sits very well simply as concert music. So that rather plaintive, lonely clarinet duet theme warms up, becomes decidedly amorous, I guess, as our sailors drink a shot and start talking girls. But clearly, the reality is probably they won't get lucky. Amorousness gives way to emptiness. The lonely clarinet duet is back in the flutes this time and then other instruments. Perhaps there's no hope until... Enter two girls. So, two girls walk into the bar. You notice as that slinky clarinet and bassoon figure builds up how once again Bernstein is constantly moving the foundations, the bass lines shifting in emphasis across the bars, everything shot through with a kind of nervous energy. Nothing is certain. You remember that tiny bit of barroom piano boogie-woogie a little bit earlier on? Well, here it is, writ large and at a much greater lick. Bernstein, the master, I think, at creating atmospheres. Now, and then, a little bit later on, the horns come thundering in with a response to that quicksilver boogie-woogie. The sailor's growing excitement. You could say the sap is rising. <laughs> Then a wonderfully oily, lascivious trombone line, followed by hot stabs from the strings. You get the idea. The boys think they're in business. Just one last thing to show you about this scene. Some inebriation, I think, is probably creeping in. Bernstein writes brilliant drunk music. And then an unmistakable wolf whistle. 
Right, we'll play these first three scenes now from Fancy Free.
Right, next we move on to the fourth scene, which is called simply Pas de Deux. Now, I'm sure most of you know very well what a Pas de Deux is, but here's a thumbnail sketch. It's French, of course, for step of two, effectively a dance for two people. By dancing with a partner, the woman can jump higher, take positions she could never do on her own, and float about the stage, carried by her partner. And a partner allows a man to extend his line and to show off his strength. Now, there is a blues song, which Bernstein wrote at exactly the same time as he wrote this ballet, entitled Big Stuff. He actually even wrote the lyrics as well, and then managed to persuade Billie Holiday to record it for him. And I want you to listen to this track now, because it forms the basis of the whole pas de deux that we'll explore in a minute. Here it is, an immortal recording. Square about you. 
Let's have a try It may be that you're my So the pas de deux here in the ballet opens with a furtive start-stop music. Again, pretty much every bar a different length. And you'll notice, I think, immediately how the bassoon rocking figure introduced right at the start is based on the rocking bass of that blues song. Now, everything settles at this point into a slow four in the bar blues. And the main theme of the vocals is heard, initially at least, in flute and trombones. Shortly afterwards, we get into that next vocal phrase from the blues song, which you might have clocked, which goes stepwise upwards in a scale. Billie Holiday actually shifts from head to chest voice about halfway through it, but in fact the line that's written goes all the way up, the lyric being, let's take a ride in my gravy train. Tantalizingly extended and compressed into different lengths, an insecure yet determined scaling of the heights in Bernstein's score here. So the main blues tune is back at its hottest and most unctuous, and the parada winds down. So the scene that follows is the dance competition scene, which of course degenerates, as I said earlier, into an out-and-out -out fight. So we're into out-and-out -out competition here. Three guys plus two girls just don't go. Musically, it's a montage of several different elements. Firstly, a return of a variant on the jivey and energetically uneven music from that very first scene. So that's all straight three in a bar, complete with strong downbeats in the bass instruments. But you can hear, I think, the melody is completely uncomfortable in its skin, flailing out across the bars. The aggression now is palpable, and after a hiatus, there's another burst of adrenaline. So a further hiatus, and then a further burst of adrenaline, which is in four this time, and then a completely new episode. Now, there's a bridge to something new, paving the way for an insolent and cocksure clarinet theme and the bulk of the movement.
Okay, and then at this point, any cocky one-upmanship now gives way to sheer high spirits, for a moment at least. But, ladies and gentlemen, I think it's fairly clear that a fight is brewing, and indeed is now breaking out with a new melody to boot. that music gradually accelerates and then suddenly falls apart, is arrested mid-phrase. The girls have left, presumably, in disgust. So, now we'll put together the big stuff blues-based pas de deux and the sailors' competition scene and perform them.
now ladies and gentlemen to the three dance variations firstly a galop which is a 19th century ballroom round dance may indeed have originated in Hungary and it's quite close in style to the can-can also there you find in Bernstein's take on the galop that it's a parody polka which hints at his later musical Condide and definitely is influenced by Shostakovich just think of some of his film music. In any case, it's some of the most madcap music Bernstein ever wrote. And I guess the boys have hit the bottle now and are in high, drunken, good spirits. The girls, remember, having fled. Now, here's a new texture within this gallop, preparing for a new melody, a contrasting and mercifully more lyrical theme in the solo trumpet. Towards the end of that, it gets really unhinged. An essay in piano and upper strings and winds in how to write all the wrong notes. The trombones, meanwhile, unperturbed, have that more lyrical theme over the top. A kind of serenity in bedlam. Well, there has to be some kind of contrast now, and Bernstein achieves it in a graceful waltz. Though being Bernstein, it's not simply a one, two, three, one, two, three affair by any means. Let me just count along to the beginning of it to illustrate a waltz perhaps for more than two 
pairs of normal feet. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, 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 one, two, three. And so on, ladies and gentlemen. A little bit later, and a total contrast, not even a hint of a waltz now, we go into four in a bar, a dry march, which is redolent of a mixture of court vile and, of course, Igor Stravinsky. Then, for his next trick, Bernstein gives us a wonderfully sugar-sweet development of that uneven waltz melody we heard at the beginning of the section. And what follows is a great example of a composer doing his working out in public. He's asking himself, how can I bring these two ideas together, the Kurt Weilly-Stravinsky idea with that dotted rhythm, the upbeat to it, and that quirky waltz figure that we heard in the first section. So he begins with the dotted rhythm, takes that forward, and then allies it to the waltz rhythm, or to the waltz theme, I should say. The third and final dance variation in this section of Bernstein's Fancy Free is entitled simply Dance On. We give you just the dictionary definition, or rather the history of this dance. The style developed in the second half of the 19th century and has been an important route for Cuban music up till the present day. The precursors of Dance On are the Contra Dancer, the Dancer, and the Habanera, all of which have their roots in French music, which in turn was influenced by German and Italian music that arrived in Cuba via Haiti. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it just proves the old truth. We're all gypsies, and all cultures of the world have been cross-fertilizing and regrouping since the dawn of time. There can be, and there is, no purity. Now, in this dance-on, you get a thoroughly Copeland-esque movement from Bernstein, but he's also looking forward to the high hormonal tension of the dance at the gym scene, you remember, in West Side Story. You might not know, but Bernstein spent a lot of time in his early life holidaying in Florida Keys. And whilst he was there listening to the radio, he heard a great deal of Cuban music, and in particular, the danson style. So here it is, writ large. Now, the classic structure of a danson is sort of theme A, theme B, theme A again, theme C, and then theme A. But as you'll hear in this, the most hip-swaying and intoxicating dance in Fancy Free, Bernstein can't resist further embroidering and exploration. The style of this dance is very different from anything else you hear in Fancy Free. Let me just give you a little flavor of it now. Just a taster of Bernstein's intoxicating dance on. Well, now we'll perform it, preceded by the other two dance variations.
The really neat thing about the plot, as engineered by Jerome Robbins and Bernstein, was that, of course, things come full circle. You know, the two girls fled, the men settled down, drank, danced some more, got morose, and then another woman comes into the bar, and the whole process can start again. And what's perfect about that from Bernstein's point of view is it gives him the ultimate opportunity for a symphonic finale, and he really proves his mettle as a composer, bringing together in shining form the bulk of the big ideas from the piece as a whole, but of course still leaving a little room for fresh exploration. There is, though, a strong sense of déjà vu. But let me just show you one stunning new feature in this finale, an achingly slow piano blues, which forms a kind of epilogue. That little oboe call there, a direct lift from the first scene. Ladies and gentlemen, John Alley on piano. Bravo. <laughs> well, it's time for some questions, and I hope you have some. Lady here? Great. Um, how often has Fancy Free been performed? Ooh, that's a very good question. It was certainly performed a lot around the time of its composition. It was a smash hit. It was first performed in March 1944 at the Metropolitan Opera House, no less, with Jerome and Robbins' choreography, obviously. Um, and uh, by all accounts, it was an absolute smash hit. It ran for something like 200 performances in New York. And then there were a further 50 performances, I think, that Bernstein got to conduct around the country, for which he was played, I believe, the princely sum of... $200 a show, which back in 1944 was a serious bit of cash. So I think he wrote to Aaron Copeland around the time that actually, happy? I'll say. I haven't got over it yet. Well, you can imagine why. His bank balance as well as his pleasure in the success of his music. Since then, I don't know. It comes up from time to time. Not nearly enough, I would say, because it is a wonderful through-composed piece of music which works equally well in the concert hall as it does of course in the theatre. Uh, how would you compare the, the impact Fancy Free had with the impact of Appalachian Spring had in 1944 and then onwards in popular, uh, popular and classical music? I think they were both very successful um, with American audiences, it's important to point out. I mean, Appalachian Spring went across the pond and was played in Europe and people were much less certain of it 
in, in Europe. Uh, people felt that it was kind of cozy and a bit parochial, but then that reveals more probably about the patronizing attitude that Europeans certainly at that point had towards America. Perhaps we have other feelings about America right now, but certainly patronizing wouldn't spring to mind. But both pieces, when they were premiered in the United States, had huge success. I think Appalachian Spring, even more than Fancy Free. Here was the work of a composer who's already well-established, Aaron Copeland, in the musical life of America. He almost single-handedly was attempting to create, to devise, to develop, and to shout from the rooftops a new all-American music, i.e. not a music that was kind of borrowed from cousins across the pond, you know, European art music. So it was the kind of symbiosis of jazz elements and, of course, of all those kind of wide-open kind of prairie tunes. I think people put their hands on their breasts and felt proud to be American when they heard Appalachian Spring. Fancy Free, on the other hand, is the work of a very young composer, not quite unknown, but still relatively unknown in terms of the New York scene. And so I think people were probably dipping a toe in the water, and it was a smash hit. And I think people's biggest fear about Bernstein at that young stage in his career was that perhaps he was a bit too clever by half. So I suspect, reading between the lines of some of the reviews and some of the responses that are chronicled from those first performances, people were grudgingly impressed by it. But then, of course, it went on to play and play, and Bernstein got rich. Is it more difficult learning and rehearsing such a complicated rhythm piece, or is it just in the normal curriculum of, a, of an orchestra? Oh, that's an interesting question. You know, I think all music brings its challenges. We were playing a Haydn symphony yesterday, and that has an equal number of challenges, but very different ones. Yes, of course, it's demanding and complicated learning a piece which is so rhythmically um, involved. That being said, as I was saying earlier about Stravinsky, and Bernstein's comments about how if you read by the Rider Spring, it would all be much easier to play. In actual fact, not that it would ever really be possible, but if an orchestra were to learn Fancy Free off by heart, in other words, so that you could take the dots away, it would be an awful lot easier to play, because it's so much about feel, but when you look at the code, as it were, on the page, it looks a lot more complex than it is. And also, all sorts of other questions which we've been asking ourselves about how much the music should be swung and how much it should be strictly what's written. If you play you know, any kind of jazz idiom, invariably you're going to swing. You're going to be slightly wide with the rhythms. Think of Frank Sinatra as the greatest possible example of that. He bent the kind of parameters of every bar and indeed of every beat within every bar. Glorious kind of rubato, which is a form of swing. Robbed time, you know, nothing is quite in the crack. Uh, with this music, same problem. How much do you do that? How much do you just play exactly what's written straight? So those kind of complicated questions, issues of balance, issues of ensemble, yeah, it's got challenges, but so is all music. So it doesn't take more rehearsing than uh, the Haydn or anybody else? Well, of course, you're sitting in a room with a very fine orchestra, yes. so they get on top yeah, of things yeah, quite fast. So, yeah. And they are Britain's most flexible and versatile orchestra as well. So they can do you know, a whole variety of things. They can play Haydn one day, Bernstein the next, and I don't know, back Brian Adams at the weekend. They do all of those things. So Fantastic. for them, it's no sweat. <laughs> Thank you. So, finally, we'll perform the finale of Leonard Bernstein's ballet, Fancy Free. <laughs> 